conversation with Dan and I. We're just so delighted to be here with you. It's honestly crazy to me that it's July and that we are trucking so fast through 2022. And it seems like every year I say this year is going by so fast and it just does keep going on fast, which makes me think more than ever, we need to be having moments where we're slowing down and we're not hurried. Uh, as it is, you know, summertime, these are moments where we really can collectively pause and just catch our breath, reevaluate what we've been prioritizing and enter into just a, a summer Sabbath rest yeah. and let that, you know, propel us and move us into the fall and the winter. Yeah, yeah we really do. The, these uh, calendar rhythms uh, and cultural rhythms uh, afford us opportunities to recalibrate. Everybody looks at the summer and there's this fascinating quote that I've been meditating on for a number of years now, Eastern Orthodox scholar who basically taught that Christians should live out of rest as a state of existence. Mm -hmm. And as you're approaching the summer, you probably feel like you're about ready to collapse. Um, but can you imagine using this summer not only to just recharge, to get catapulted back into the insanity and chaos of life in the fall, but to create a posture of heart where you carry into the fall a non-anxious presence and a peaceful presence. Mm -hmm. It's really, I think, one of the great callings and responsibilities of the Christian community in this day and age to live our lives out of rest as a state of existence. And I don't think it's too idealistic. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor, and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He wasn't talking about just collapsing in the summer and trying to recuperate. <laughs> he was talking about a deep soul rest that transforms the way that we live into the chaos of the world around us and influences it with that non-anxious, peaceful presence. Well, as you know, we've been uh, just making our way through these seven convictions as a community, uh, Gosh, I think it'd actually be really good just to do a little recap, not necessarily a full-on recap of each conviction, but we've talked about being a community of orthodoxy. Yeah, that courageous, yeah, this is like legit unscripted conversation, so give us a little chance here, but yeah, that <laughs> we courageous, might forget one, <laughs> courageous fidelity to, uh, to orthodoxy yep. in, a, in a world of compromise. Our conviction is that we must hold this standard of faith get laid out in the word of God. Mm -hmm. We've talked about being people who are contemplative, mm -hmm. uh, practicing the way of Jesus through silence and solitude. The slowed down spirituality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We've also talked about being a charismatic people who are animated by the Holy Spirit and just, you know, his presence filling us and living into the world. We've talked about being people that uh, contend, that get after uh, real effective work via prayer. Mm -hmm. We've talked about being a people who are contextual. I loved that conversation with Joshua and uh, with Joshua and between Joshua and Dan. Excuse me. 
just being contextual and how we live into this culture. What's the interface? mm -hmm, Mm -hmm. And for such a time as this, who are we called to? And we've also talked about... uh, I think that's it. Yeah, that's actually it. We've reached our sixth one. Yeah. So here we are on the sixth conviction. And that is to be a people who... Our conviction is to be a people who are compassionate a compassionate people. You know, God's heart for humanity is equality in every way. Yep. And we all know what's happened in the story. Sin has destroyed that equality, but really the church exists to bring equality in the world. And so to be a compassionate people most tangibly and practically, that is remembering the poor. That is remembering the orphan, the widow, the immigrant. We will live and intentionally serve. We will live among and intentionally serve the poor and the overlooked and the marginalized in a way that embodies uh, the way of Jesus and seeks to find God in the face of those that are really considered the outsiders of, of our community and our culture. And so as a community, our sixth conviction is to be a compassionate people remembering the poor. And what we see in the history of renewal movements is often God awakens lost or neglected facets of Christian practice and Christian faith. So in the Jesus movements, there was this reawakening to the word of God as sufficient. Um, in this current moment, what we're seeing is really a resurgence within the evangelical community. And I, I use the word evangelical carefully. It is it is so heavy laden with baggage. Uh, but to describe a community of people that hold to uh, the authority of scripture um, and yeah, it's a difficult word, but you, I hope you understand what I'm talking about. There's this resurgence of care for the poor. Mm-hmm. As the Holy Spirit is seeking to bring renewal to Christian communities and bring revival in the world, one of the things that continually is coming to the surface, and a lot of this is the millennial and Gen Z influence, where uh, these generations of Christians are like, we need to be doing something in the world that actually has physical, tangible, measurable effect. Yeah, practically being yeah, the what hands is our and feet mission? of Jesus. What is our purpose? So just a brief history of this, so you can kind of get the lay of the land for where we are. Historically, evangelicalism um, in the West, Protestant Christianity in the West, has been kind of divided into two camps. One camp usually would be a little bit left of center theologically, and even, I suppose, politically, if you really trace the history. Um, And the left of center camp of Christianity would be focused on social justice. To the point where conservative Christianity um, began to talk about the social gospel or the social justice gospel as if that was a negative thing, Um, which is just horrific when you actually begin to think about it. Because, Because what would happen in these left of center communities where social justice, care for the poor um, was such an emphasis, they also simultaneously would tend to dismiss the authority of scripture, uh, particularly around moral and ethical issues in the teachings of Jesus. And on the other camp, in the other camp, that camp was usually a little bit right of center theologically. And even politically, that camp gave rise to 
uh, the Christian right and the mess that we have now in the evangelical community and its its ties with Christian nationalism and all of the idolatrous, abysmal failures that that has created in this cultural moment. And this camp harped on biblical morality, uh, was very comfortable with the authority of scripture, but really neglected serving the poor. And so diminished its witness of care and compassion. And it created a damaging and false dichotomy in the church of Jesus. Liberals care for the poor, but they don't preach the true gospel, went the, the saying. And the conservatives teach the Bible, but they don't care for the poor. Well, you just simply can't have that. That just simply, that is not a biblical Christianity in any way, shape, or form. And so in the midst of a, a renewal movement, these two realities come together in um, symbiotic union, <laughs> in this beautiful melding of a biblical teaching that creates a balance and a, a nuanced tether and a whole that is so much more powerful, so much more beautiful. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of James uh, 1, verse 27, James says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So did you hear that both and there? We're to look after the orphans and the widows, the marginalized, the oppressed, the hurting, and we are to be pure. We're to be kept from the kept from the world. Again, it's going back to that first conviction that we fleshed out earlier in the year, being a people committed to orthodoxy and fidelity to scripture. And so beautifully and wonderfully, this gap is really closing and disappearing in the renewal movements of the spirit in our generation. And as we're seeing, and we've always known, the gospel is active and living, and it's actually bringing about action and um, the contours of the kingdom are being made manifest through the church. Mm-hmm. It's so powerful. Yeah, and most of the folks that are part of our community, you probably have a similar background to me, which has created an anemia or an unconscious weakness in this area of care for the poor or seeing the marginalized. We traditionally, our, our community traditionally comes from um, Bible people. You know, we teach the Bible. And which is beautiful, which is beautiful and so important. Um, and I, I am actually honestly sometimes surprised because I have in my 20 years of teaching the Bible <laughs> glossed over the virtually innumerable mm-hmm. commands and mentions of care for the poor, care for the poor, care for the poor throughout the book of Acts as Paul is making his missionary journeys and planting churches and he goes back and he meets with some of the big dogs, Peter and James and John and the like to get approval for his church planting ministries. Um, they're basically like, we love what you're doing. Just don't forget the poor. Right. And Paul's like, okay, great. That's exactly what I'm doing. And even like in the church planting world that my wife and I have been a part of for, you know, two, two decades now, church planting was all about entrepreneurship, catalytic leadership, strategic organization, uh, I don't remember sitting through a church planting conference or a boot camp or even trainings or even cohorts and cadres where at the front of the conversation was we plant churches by caring for the poor, uh, by reaching out to the marginalized, the diminished, the unseen. It actually makes me think of one couple here in Southern California um, that I met several, several years back. Oh, yeah. And their whole emphasis was um, 
the poor and going after those on the margins. Mm. And I remember in conversations, sometimes people looking at them like, well, how are you going to build a church on that? Mm -hmm. And just, I remember thinking there's something really potent about what they're doing. And I don't understand why, why everyone's kind of looking at them like you're crazy. But as Dan and I have been even considering this conversation, we both have acknowledged like this is honestly one of our greatest weaknesses is it's so easy to get focused on our little world and to completely overlook the world around us and to look into the eyes of the hurting and the marginalized, the person without a house on the side of the street that we pass by every single day and to just overlook them and being so wrongly consumed by our own life and what we want and what we're you know, contending for when Jesus is saying, it's the least among these. Are you contending for them? Yeah, I think the anemia or the weakness in considering this in my own heart around compassion and care for the poor is that it directly confronts the cool factor in Western Christianity. You know, um, the, the whole idea of being culturally relevant and, you know, intelligent and, um, you know, you're, you're exegeting culture and you're, you're interacting with the literature of the elites. The guy struck with schizophrenia on the side of the road and the heroin addict laying in his underwear under the bridge over by city college, that, that is not at all interacting with the power and the eliteness of culture. And so, to serve the poor and to care for the poor uh, requires in some, um, again, I'm preaching to the choir here. I am preaching this to myself, dear friend. You have to be honest about your self-absorption. And you have to realize, oh man, my motivations in discipleship and leadership and prayer, uh, on the one hand, I'm always too busy. I'm always too busy to serve outside of what I want. And on the other hand, does it really benefit my platform or my cool factor or my identity? That's one thing I was going to mention too, is as we're going to talk about, you know, remembering the poor isn't just bringing them to our mind, but it's actually like living among and serving them. And that takes a lot of intentionality. And so it's also, you know, while Dan's talking about, it's not cool culturally, it's also not serving the poor, you know, one time a year to, you know, take a picture and put it on your real or create a story or tick tock about it. Right. It's it's literally to be unseen with a people that are completely unseen culturally. Mm. Mm. And it's not to, you know, do your real and to be like, look how incredible this was for your one time in the year. And it's just so counterintuitive to especially in the West what what we're like, you know, constantly being confronted to, you know, engage in in the sense mm-hmm. of like how we want to present ourselves. It's yeah. all it's again, we talked about in the last conversation, it's not making ourselves the center of the story. Yeah. And so Yeah, and and this is the thing. All all the practices of Jesus, be that fasting, be that silence and solitude, they're they're counterforming. And if you make serving the poor or seeing the marginalized or um, identifying with the unidentified, the anonymous, the, the off-scouring, so to speak, 
Um, it is a direct counterformation to what we build our identity and our um, social value on. And um, it's secret. It really is unseen. I, I do think that there is um, a, a real aberration of serving the poor or mission work around this community of people if the motivation is to get it onto our Instagrams and get it onto our reels, there's a, almost a, a prostituting of the poor in that situation where we're just using. And I, I don't say that in any condemning way. I'm deeply, this conversation is, is very pointed for me personally because I have this conversation come up in my life over and over and over as your quintessential type A catalytic strategic type leader. And the spirit is moving me. I mean, the prophet Isaiah literally said, you fast and pray and then you wonder why God doesn't answer. Well, here's the true fast. Care for the poor. Care for the impoverished. Go after the least of these. Create equality in this world and then your light will be vindicated. This whole idea of equality um, and righting all the wrong that is done in the world making places of justice where there has been injustice is captured by two key terms in the Old Testament. Here's I mean, a little, really, it's like set up from the very beginning. From the very beginning, from the moment of the fall, you have these two key words that carry through. They're always found together for the most part in all of, uh, in all of the Tanakh and all of Torah and all of prophets and all of Psalms and all of books of wisdom. And it is Sedekai and Mishpat. Tzedakah and Mishpat, these are the, the Hebrew terms that we roughly translate in our English, righteousness and justice. Uh, the problem with our English translations is we think of righteousness purely in moral terms. I need to do what's right to be righteous. And we think of justice purely in uh, forensic or uh, legal courtroom, ter courtroom terms, guilty or innocent. But that really that really, I, that's a small component of Sedika in Mishpat. That's a very small component. It's a, it is a slice of the pie, but it's only a slice of the pie. Because for the ancient Hebrews, whenever they talked about doing righteousness, Sedika, whenever they talked about Mishpat, justice, they thought in terms of shalom, what has been lost in the world. And shalom, again, is that other gigantic Hebrew term of it's more than peace. It is peace that is the result of equality. It is the, the low being lifted to an equal status of the high. It is the poor being given what the rich have. It is the weak being given strength. It's this equality. So Sedeka and Mishpat is more than moral and more than forensic. It is doing equality in the world at cost to ourselves. And just a quick plug, uh, the Bible Project honestly has an incredible, very, you know, brief video mm -hmm. on this whole idea. And I can't, I just, I would encourage you even after listening to this, if you get time at some point today or in this week to go watch that because it just fleshes it out even more than Dan and I have time to here. But again, in terms of bringing, again, ushering in Shalom, if you think about it as image bearers, our calling is to bring beauty and wholeness and good to this world. And really... At cost to ourselves. At cost to ourselves. As we follow Jesus, we carry our own cross. This mm -hmm. is the, the pain point of mm -hmm. compassion. Mm -hmm. and, and honestly, when we live and we're saturated in a very self-centered culture, 
you know, where self-care is important. It, it is important, but it can't be at the expense of the least among us. There's many among us who, who don't get to think about self-care at all and get to think of, okay, I've been with people for so many days, so now I need to have a day to myself to recharge. That's beautiful, but there's the least among us who aren't afforded those privileges. Yeah, I, and so our calling as believers is to to bring beauty, wholeness, and good to those people too. Yeah. I There's a couple notes on this, this self-absorption thing that are very convicting for me and I think helpful in course correcting our uh, my, my personal weakness in the compassionate realm. Um, I was a month or so ago, uh, I had opportunity to be in a room with Tom, with Tom Wright and have just uh, some time with him and have conversation and questions. One of the things that came up from that, one of his primary concerns for the modern church that came out of that conversation um, Tom Wright said, basically, he's very concerned about what he perceives to be a growing Gnosticism within the church. And what he meant by that was this inward turn to looking inward to find the truest self, this, this commitment to finding ourselves. Tom was saying that is a form of Gnosticism where we no longer define ourselves by the community around us or by the authoritative objective scriptures that form who our sense of identity is. We look inward. And he didn't say this in a diminishing way because both Alexis and I are proponents of therapy, but he did say in an over-therapized culture, it's a Trojan horse for modern Gnosticism where the self becomes the center of authority and the self becomes the primary focus. When we live our lives according to the New Testament, though, what we find is we see the face of Jesus and we find ourselves serving as Jesus would serve mm. with the poor. And so the, the turn from that self-absorption and the constant need to self-care, it doesn't come when all of a sudden we have the epiphany and now I've arrived and now I know who I am. It's actually a process of discovering who we are by serving outside of ourselves. Uh, St. Paul in the book of Philippians, the book that we've been in and, and are wrapping up this month actually, he talked about having his life poured out as a drink offering on the service and faith of the Philippian church. It, the, the image that Paul creates is, the other people that he was serving are the altar upon which his life is poured out. And this is a, this is an important turning point for all of us. I think when we think about compassion and care for the least of these, we find our truest selves by serving selves that are outside of us. And there were four categories broadly in the old Testament. And that Jesus, I think was communicating to his church to always be on the lookout for the orphan, the widow, the poor, uh, and the immigrant. And when we consider those categories of people, orphans, widows, the poor, the immigrants, I think one of the things that stalls out our pursuit of compassion in our personal lives is we just get overwhelmed with the sheer need, the sheer tonnage of people that are in need in front of us that have less than that are orphaned, are widowed, are poor, are without a home, are uh, non-English speaking immigrants. That in and of itself is a massive, difficult wall. And so we get overwhelmed. And um, I don't remember who it was. It may have been Tyler at Bridgetown or somebody, some teacher that I really respect was 
was talking about the necessity of um, literally doing what's in front of you. Um, Jesus would say, if you give a cup of cold water in his name, there's a reward for it. And so it's, it's not looking to heal the whole of the world. It's looking to those tiny little places, those moments that are directly in front of you in the rhythms of your day where the Holy Spirit has already sent you, how might you exhibit compassion? How might you create some equality between yourself and another human being that you know has way less than you have? Um, and one of the first ways that we can do that, especially as affluent Christians in the West, is financially. Um, we can be generous. We, most of us have some sort of minimal teaching in the principle of tithing 10%. And uh, yes, there is a necessity of supporting the local community that you are a part of, but there is an equal, if not even greater necessity of our generosity being contributed towards those that have less at cost to ourselves. The only caveat, or I suppose the only danger that we need to be aware of as affluent Western Christians is to give generously is not necessarily to actually identify with the poor. Mm -hmm. The very etymology or the, the origin of the word compassionate is com and passion. The Latin with and passion is the Latin for suffering. Suffer with. Yeah, That's suffer what it with. means. Mm -hmm. So we can easily sit in the confines of our comfortable home and dump a bunch of money into a push pay account for some nonprofit that we really respect and love. And we should do that. But there has to be the next step of suffering with. It makes me think of, you know, just a couple months ago, we had the Walk for Water event. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. you know, while yes, you could just give financially to that and be like, I'm supporting building a well in Africa and I'm going to provide clean water for these people. The whole point of walking for water and coming together as a group of people and walking the three point you know, seven miles or whatever it was, um, is to identify with these people's process of having to go get water, which is usually contaminated. And so as we're walking for water, we're carrying these water jugs and it's a way that we're putting ourselves in their shoes and we're identifying with, with what they're going through. It also makes me think of, you know, Royal Family Kids Camp that just was concluded. Oh my gosh, yeah. You know, Yes, it's beautiful. And we do need financial backing for Royal Family Kids Camp to get put on to serve the foster youth in San Diego and to give them such a blessed and wonderful time to shower them with gifts. That takes resources, that takes money, but it also takes people who are willing to actually spend the week with those children and to love them and to, like Dan said, come alongside them, to suffer with them, to hear their stories, to be with them when they cry, and they say, I don't want to leave this place and go back to what, I, what I'm in. It's just a way where you're able to intentionally come alongside them and, and walk with them and identify with what they're, they're um, you know, they're suffering. They're suffering, yeah. yeah. And really, when we identify with those that are different than us, it's just such a potent reminder that it's really only the grace of God that we have what we have. And um, many of us have circumstances that are just so lavish and abundant. And, and we believe that we accomplish that in our own power, mm -hmm. 
because we figured it out and this other person didn't. That's or ludicrous. we consider that like blessed. And while yes, there is, you know, blessing in that, it's still um, a grace. It's an absolute grace. I would also say that you know, just concretely giving of our finances and resources is a way to come alongside the poor. But I would also say uh, most most uh, significantly is giving of time. And, you know, last year, I think it was, we had a conversation about our sacred yes and our sacred no. And I'm going to, to go so far as to say that this is a sacred yes. This isn't something that we're like, should I say yes to this? Or is this a <laughs> sacred no in my life? I'm saying this to myself too right now. Serving the poor and coming alongside them, the immigrant, the orphan, the widow is a sacred yes. Therefore, what do we actually need to say no to in order to make this a sacred yes? And I know that's difficult, um, but otherwise, if we're not intentionally giving of our time, we are not going to do this. If we're not getting strategic in, you know, who am I feeling called to? I think of my mom. She has such a heart for refugees mm -hmm. and she's an English professor. And so naturally she's like, oh, I want to work at the refugee center and I want to teach immigrants English and I want to come alongside them and learning how to get their job applications out and I want to help them. She's using just what's in front of her and what she's naturally kind of drawn towards and like stepping into areas where she could use that. And so you know, when you're giving of your time, it's a sacred yes. And just prayerfully consider where can I intentionally, you know, in the rhythms of my life say, here's a yes, here's a, an area where I can go into this and mm -hmm. I can come alongside and suffer with. It's not only intentionally. I think the intentional piece is the most important, but there's the spon spontaneity as well. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I, I lost this somewhat through the many years of becoming a quote unquote, mature Christian leader. In my earliest days of Christianity, I just loved the craziest of the crazies, you know, the homeless guy. Maybe because you were kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like I could see myself in them. You know, I really could. And um, was so grateful to have not ended up on the streets or having literally completely lost my mind. I was just so grateful. And before you and I were married, I remember, I think you and I were dating. It was not too infrequent for me to just see somebody on the side of the street and grab and be like, Hey, you're going to come get a shower at my house. You're going to sleep. Uh, remember one time you were out of town. Maybe we'd been married for a few weeks. Yeah. I think we'd been married like a month. <laughs> I call you up. I'm like, Hey, we got this homeless guy sleeping in the second room. <laughs> and you were like, he's, was it? No, no. <laughs> yeah. It was like, we need to have a conversation about how we're going to be doing this now. <laughs> And um, yeah, there's prudence. It is a crazy world and there are very, very dangerous things that happen. And, and that subset of the population is dealing with a lot of violence and a lot of um, issues. It does not neg negate the fact that Jesus would call us to be spontaneous and maybe not bring them into our home and spend the night in, our, in a dangerous way, but buy somebody a burrito. Um, I, I love, love, love meeting the homeless people, getting their names, and just talking with them, hearing their story, trying to listen to what they're saying and, and hearing who these humans are and granting them. And I love to always speak over them. You are a dignified child of God. You are a holy queen or king 
awaiting uh, your reign because what you'll find is within the homeless populations and those that are really down and out, um, most of them will say, I'm a Christian. Most of them will say, uh, I'm following Jesus. And I think that that, even in sharing those stories, um, is a bit counter to what I'm about to say because when you serve the poor, if it is a counterformational practice for your soul and it's not Instagrammed, you do it secretly. Mm-hmm. Um, so much of Christianity actually needs to be done secretly. You pray in the closet secretly. Jesus said, when you fast, don't let everybody know that you're fasting, do it secretly. He said, when you give alms, do that secretly. There's a, a sweetness and a potency to God's people going about God's work for the unseen in unseen ways. Anonymously. Anonymously in obscurity. You are entering into, you are compassion, suffering with, in the obscurity, in the anonymity. Uh, And it's you and the king and another child of God, another human to whom you are bringing dignity and equality. And nobody else needs to know that. But the two of you in that moment or the community that you're with at the soup kitchen or wherever it is that you intentionally decide, hey, I'm going to, in a rhythmic way, be involved in this population. And I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to have my life matter. Um, We need to wrap this up. And I want to close with what has always been, honestly, um, a jarring teaching from Jesus in Matthew 25. And I think that it's jarring, but also motivating. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, Then he'll sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be assembled before him and he'll separate people from one another like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He's going to put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now listen to this. He uses a personal pronoun for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, I tell you the truth, just as you did it for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did it for me. There is this mystical reality that we see Jesus in the imprisoned, in the poor, in the naked, in the impoverished, in the, in the, um, in those that seem to have lost their minds. We are seeing Jesus, and the righteous, the righteous of their own volition, choose to, to give a sacred no to all of the self-absorption of our cultural moment and our own comfort desires. And, and give a sacred yes to these spontaneous and intentional times of going to Jesus, going to be with Jesus in that homeless person or in that prison ministry or in that soup kitchen. Yeah, so I would, you know, just in closing, ask you guys, ask myself, what is right in front of you? What is right in front of me? Who am I being called to give a glass of water to? Who am I being called to spontaneously provide a dinner for? Who are we being called to intentionally say, I'm going to, you know, be a big brother or a big sister and I'm going to tutor this student for nine months out of the year and just come alongside. Pray and consider, you know, Lord, who is it that you're calling me to? And don't just 
don't just stop there, but act. Come alongside, suffer with, and it'll be powerful that it will be us being a compassionate people where our uh, works are in line with our beliefs, where there's an outflow of not just, you know, theologically believing something and affirming something, but we're actively doing something. And Jesus says, just as you did it for one of the least of these, you did it for me. Go and be with your king in the midst of the poor, the imprisoned, the impoverished, and the unseen. And be blessed. Shalom, friends. Shalom.